From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The first Supreme Court justice President Trump appointed is a Coloradan, Neil Gorsuch. So how's he doing on the bench? We'll get analysis. He's an independent guy, and he's not as predictable as we might have thought. But I do not want to convey to people that he's going to be a liberal on a lot of issues, because he's not a liberal guy. He's just a different type of conservative. Different how? Later, we climb on board country singer Claire Dunn's tour bus. She grew up on a ranch in Two Buttes, Colorado. And if showbiz ever gets to her head... (laughs) My my parents would be like, oh, yeah, okay, well, there's chores outside. There's a horse stall that needs to be cleaned. Yeah, if you could just, when you're done writing that song, get out there and do it. Love that cowboy side of you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. He was President Trump's first appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court. Colorado native Neil Gorsuch was also the first of an expected conservative wave that could change the highest court for generations. But after two and a half years, Gorsuch isn't quite as predictable as some had predicted. David Savage is Supreme Court reporter for the Los Angeles Times. We reached him in Washington. David, thank you for being with us. Good to be with you. In a recent article, you described Gorsuch as a wild card and a libertarian. Uh, Why did you use those words? Gorsuch is a conservative, and that's no surprise. But I was a little surprised that he separated himself from the other conservatives on quite a few cases involving criminal issues. And most of the conservatives are skeptical of the EPA or you know, federal regulation, but they always vote, almost always vote to uphold, say, criminal prosecutions or the police. Gorsuch is, I think, sort of an across-the-board libertarian who is skeptical of government. And so there have been a surprising number of cases where he was with the more liberal members of the court to either rein in or reverse in some sort of criminal case. So that's why I called him a libertarian. Wild card may be a little too strong. (laughs) Maybe those were your editor's words. (laughs) Yes, that was a headline on the story, and I I agree with it in part. That is that he's an independent guy, and he's not as predictable as we might have thought. But I do not want to convey to people that he's going to be a liberal on a lot of issues, because he's not a liberal guy. He's just a different type of conservative. Okay, you talked about this idea that he is skeptical of the sort of role of government in people's lives. And and that's more evenly applied to government agencies, but also law enforcement. Can you think of a case that exemplifies this? There was a case decided in June called United States versus Davis. It's a fellow named Andre Davis and one of his cohorts, another fellow named Glover, who got 50 years in prison for having robbed four gas stations in the Dallas area. They come under a federal prosecution And they were charged with robbing the gas stations, carrying a gun. And then there was some provision of federal law that allowed for a 25-year additional term. And the provision they were charged under, Gorsuch said, was just simply too vague. It said something like, engaged in conduct that could result in the use of physical force that would endanger people. And there have been a couple of these cases where Gorsuch has said, If we're going to charge somebody with a crime, and in this case, add 25 years in prison, we ought to be able to say what the 
crime is. We shouldn't allow the government to have these fairly vague laws that allow people to sort of throw the book at uh, people for um, essentially a charge, a crime that's sort of hard to define. So he wrote a five to four opinion overturning that part of their conviction and sort of throwing out this provision that had the 25-year add-on. Gorsuch served on the U.S. Court of Appeals in Denver for several years. Uh, and I, I wonder, just looking at his history, if this is at all a surprise that he's not necessarily a wild card, but not a reliable conservative. Well, I remember reading a lot of his opinions from the Tenth Circuit when he was up for confirmation, and I thought there were a lot of interesting opinions uh, from the guy. I remember reading one where he overturned a conviction in a case involving an illegal immigrant, and there was a case involving a a kid who had gotten arrested at high school for, you know, like acting up in class, and they sent the police in, and Gorsuch was sort of put off, but why would you send the police in for a small matter in a high school class? I remember at the time thinking, wow, if this guy is the way he sounds on the appeals court, he's going to bring an interesting element to the court. So I must say I wasn't, I'm not surprised in that sense. I wonder if the president who appointed him is surprised. I mean, do you see him following the model of former Chief Justice Earl Warren? Warren was appointed by Republican President Dwight Eisenhower in the 1950s, then became known for relatively liberal decisions in some landmark cases, including Brown versus Board of Education. Eisenhower later said appointing Warren was one of the worst mistakes of his presidency. Are we headed in that direction with Gorsuch and Trump? No, (laughs) no, I I don't think. uh, First of all, I don't think Gorsuch will move far left. As you say, Earl Warren was a historic figure and very liberal compared to what Eisenhower. I don't think Gorsuch is headed that way. I also don't think, it's hard to say, President Trump, he doesn't pay a lot of attention to details. And so far, Gorsuch has not crossed Trump or the Trump administration on anything big. You know, we will see, because there's going to be some cases where the court is put to the test. So far, Gorsuch has voted reliably with the conservatives on all the issues that directly involve President Trump. So the kinds of cases I'm talking about are sort of criminal cases or government cases. They don't sort of rise to the level of something that would get President Trump's attention. What stands out about Gorsuch in terms of his writing or perhaps uh, how he comports himself when there are oral arguments in front of the court? He's an excellent writer in my opinion, the best on the court. Uh, oh, wow. He writes opinions with a big picture. You know, he will say, you know, the Constitution set up a separation of powers specifically to preserve liberty. And we have an example here of how this plays out. You know, in, in other words, he'll give you the big picture. Frame and it, then yeah. And then, yes, frame it and then decide the case. So I think he's a terrific writer. On the, in the court argument, he's a very smart polite questioner. He's not a uh, attack dog. He usually listens to the argument for a while, and at some point he will ask a question or two, and frequently he's got a different idea or a different view or a different theory, and he'll try out his idea or theory on the council, and um, he always asks, I think, very smart questions, but they sort of come at it from his own particular take on it, and uh, He's, as I say, a little bit hard to uh, predict. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the Supreme Court reporter for the Los Angeles Times, that's David Savage. He's giving us some insight into the Coloradan on the U.S. Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch, who was nominated by President Trump, confirmed by the Senate just about two terms ago. And, and David, it really sounded like you were describing Gorsuch as a guy who is concerned about someone's individuality, almost their privacy in the face of government intervention, right? Whether that's law enforcement or a regulatory agency. Square that for me with his rather staunch views against abortion. He also has written extensively against assisted suicide or medical aid in dying. Like on one hand, you have him saying government butt out. On the other, he clearly would support restrictions on abortion. Yes, I, I think you're right to raise that, and I don't think I can reconcile them. I think I can explain part of his view. Now, I, I should say we don't really have a lot of evidence so far about abortion and assisted suicide as a justice of the Supreme Court. No. We do expect uh, he will be on the conservative side of all those cases. I think his view is the same view as Justice Scalia, who he replaced, which is essentially the Constitution doesn't say anything about abortion, doesn't say anything about assisted suicide, and that that's in both cases, in his view, I think, will be it's up to the states Mm. to decide. The 14th Amendment just says, you know, the states may not deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law. I mean, would you read that phrase and say, oh, that's a right to an abortion? And the court did 40 years ago. The conservative justices have never really bought that idea. I think they will be skeptical. I I don't know whether they will overturn Roe, but I do think they will limit the abortion right. And their view, as I say, is this was not for us to decide. There is no federal constitutional written right to abortion. Therefore, the people of Colorado... uh, get to decide, we'll to decide the laws in this area. They'd, yes. be, they'd be dubious about the idea of uh, of penumbra, of, of like a penumbrial decision, which Roe was, you know, this idea yeah. that, that there is all kinds of subtext in the Constitution. That's exactly right. I mean, the court in the 60s, that was a decision about contraceptives, was basically saying there's a series of rights in the Bill of Rights, and we should read those broadly to say government get out of people's private life, personal business, and therefore we're going to read those rights broadly. Gorsuch is a Westerner. Uh, That means that he has had to deal with water law and the law of the land, the literal land. Um, How does his Westernness manifest on the court? I mean, it's been what, since uh, Sandra Day O'Connor? we have had a Westerner on the court like this? Yes, I think that's, that's fair. <laughs> I should say, on behalf of California, that Justice Breyer grew up in San Francisco and Justice Kennedy grew up in Sacramento, but Justice Scalia would always say, oh, that doesn't count. They're Californians. <laughs> okay. You'll, you'll have find quite a few people in Colorado who agree with you and some who don't, but... That, that's exactly right. I mean, it's Justice Scalia said, no, we need a true Westerner, not a, not a Californian. But um, the area where it's shown up so far, I think it'll show up over the years in a lot of cases. But he's actually been involved in three or four cases involving Indian tribes, and he's been on the tribal side of those cases. His 
view has been the federal government made treaties with the tribes, and we should honor those treaties. That has, like, tipped the majority in a couple cases. So that seems to me a very, at least one type of Westerner's view. All right, to wrap up, uh, when the new term begins in October, are there any pending cases that you'll be watching uh, that may be revealing about Gorsuch? One of the big cases is the DACA case, is whether the court will allow the Trump administration to repeal DACA, the Deferred Action for Young Immigrants. And there's a series of challenges to Trump policies, Trump regulations. All of them are getting appealed to the court. And where I want to watch is to see if Gorsuch is a real believer in you know, skepticism to government power. Is he ever going to stand up against the Trump administration and say, no, you can't, the Trump administration can't do this. They've gone too far. And we haven't seen it yet, but uh, that's what I'll be watching for in the fall. David, thanks for your time. Thank you. David Savage is Supreme Court reporter for the L.A. Times. He joined us by phone from Washington. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Orange spheres hang on power lines across Colorado, including over Highway 285 near Conifer. That's where Heather Hagen and her husband have been doing a lot of driving. They're looking for a new home in the area. And through Colorado Wonders, she asks, what are those orange balls for? CPR News fellow Taylor Allen is here with the answer. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Ryan. Okay, what are these things? So they're called aerial marker balls. They're usually on wires that cross canyons, lakes, and rivers. They're supposed to be visible so pilots of helicopters and low-flying planes can spot them. A lot of helicopters and planes around the country were crashing into the wires, and people were dying. So the aerial markers are more for precautions than anything else since about the 1950s. The 1950s. Are aircraft supposed to be flying so low that they could potentially hit these power lines? Well, no. Um, They're supposed to stay above those power poles, but they're hard to see from certain elevations, so they're there for an extra precaution. Why orange? Uh, They actually started out as red, and the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, actually studied this and realized that orange is probably the most visible option. Um, That's unless, you know, you're in New England, where the fall colors can obscure the balls. And in Alaska, you don't want to use white because of all the snow. Um, It's simply a matter of choosing something that works in the environment, so it's not blending into the surroundings. I have wondered about these as well, and my guess, Taylor, is that they stabilized power lines in high winds. There's actually a really common misconception. And when I called the FAA, they were like, no, I don't know who (laughs) said that old folklore, but it's just not true. Okay, but other people clearly have believed this. We're setting them straight. How did they come to Colorado? Well, according to Excel Energy, which covers about 65 percent of Colorado, they've been slowly introducing them since about the 1980s. Um, Excel continually uh, evaluates to see where they're needed. Around that time in 1988, that's when a Nine News helicopter crashed after hitting an unmarked line after covering a small plane crash in the mountains. Two journalists died in that crash, pilot reporter Leo Galanis and photographer John Brian Hostetler. Oh, my goodness. They were covering a plane crash, and they were in the Nine News helicopter. 
I understand that you talked to the photojournalist uh, at Nine News who was at the station at the time. Yes, um, his name is Manny Sotelo. And at the time, the station had a two-way system that all helicopters could communicate through. Um, he remembers hearing a colleague on the radio that wasn't Hostetler or Galanis. Probably five minutes later, you know, I hear him say that he's searching for the site. You know, again, I'm thinking, what site is he looking for? Minutes went by, it's like, he can't be looking for a crash site, I don't think. It was uh, then probably another five minutes later that he discovered the site and, and uh, radioed to our assignment desk. And that's when it hit me that he was looking for Sky Night. Everything after that seemed all like a slow motion. Huh. You mentioned Excel has been gradually rolling these out. It's not the law, Taylor? No. um, The FAA doesn't have that power. They can only recommend. There is a little caveat to that. The reason why it's not a requirement at all is because there's so many variables like landscape and if you can get up to certain heights, stuff like that. Weather conditions. All of that, Uh yeah. There's just so many variables. They're strongly encouraged, at least by the FAA, but not mandated. Yes. Well, thanks for breaking this down for us. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. CPR's Taylor Allen is a Max Wysick News Fellow. She joined us for Colorado Wonders, in which we answer your questions about the state. So far, the wildfire season has been relatively calm. Colorado's helicopter unit is taking advantage of the lull to train to become the first state team to fight fires at night. But there's a reason that tactic isn't very common. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports. It's nighttime at Brush Hollow Reservoir outside of Canyon City. A bright light shines in the darkness from a helicopter hovering close above. The pilot repeatedly swoops down to fill a bucket with water, then drops it on nearby illuminated targets. Winnie Murphy is the helicopter manager. So up until now, nearly all helicopter crews like mine in the country have been limited to strictly daytime operations. Murphy is with the Colorado Division of Fire Prevention and Control. He says this new nighttime program is needed as more people move into areas at risk for fire. There is a particular need, especially in Colorado, to hop on these fires when they're small and put them out when they're small. The pilot uses a pair of powerful night vision goggles, and the team on the ground helps guide the helicopter where to go. Murphy says a successful training means good communication between the crew and that the pilot's time is used efficiently. They're sharing him, not just drawing him into one spot, but coordinating with the other ground crews of when they want a drop and where they want it. The next morning, Murphy is at the Fremont County Airport in Penrose, where the helicopter team is based. He's been fighting fires for 13 years and joined Colorado's helicopter team when it formed four years ago. Murphy says when he got the call from his boss that they were going to try out this nighttime firefighting thing, he was apprehensive. My initial perception was this is a big risk added on to what is already a complicated and complex operation in the helicopter firefighting world. Murphy says his views have changed since the trainings, but his initial concerns are what have kept other states and federal agencies from going all in on nighttime aviation firefighting. Vince Wellbaum is Murphy's boss, Colorado's fire prevention aviation chief. He was the one who pushed the state to try this out. There's a lot of states that are looking at us to see how this is going to be uh, success or not. Before this job, Wellbaum was with the U.S. Forest Service. He worked with them to reinstate some nighttime helicopter firefighting in California after a ban of more than 30 years. 
There was an accident in the 1970s. A pilot was killed after two helicopters collided in the dark. That became a concern and people started using the night flying capability less and less on the Forest Service side until they basically eliminated the program. The U.S. Forest Service says they resumed the limited night operations in California to address concerns about wildland fire response in urban areas where the tool could be helpful. Wellbaum says he wanted to bring that same resource to Colorado, especially as climate change brings drier summers and more wildfires. We used to have a fire season that was maybe three, four, five months long, and now we basically have fire season year-round. But the U.S. Forest Service says there's a reason their night flying is so limited. It's high risk and expensive. Colorado's night program costs $100,000 to start up, and each reoccurrence training costs another $5,000. Those are done every three weeks throughout the summer. Wellbaum says his team will only go out at night if property and lives are at stake. He says the money and the potential safety risk are worth it if people's homes and lives are saved. We probably could have used night flying capability on about four fires last year. Like the Spring Creek Fire, which burned in southern Colorado near Levita, it was the third largest wildfire in state history. More than 140 buildings were destroyed. Team pilot Kim Hatch worked the Spring Creek Fire. He wishes he had had the nighttime training sooner. He remembers a particular house he was trying to protect from the flames when it got dark and he had to land. I wasn't sure if the house got saved or not until like three days later. When he flew back in, he was relieved to see the house was still there. But he hates to think what could have happened. He's glad he can now stick around to fight future nighttime flames. If you can continue on past that, you know, oh, you've got land time, I think it could benefit. Hatch and the rest of the helicopter team haven't tried out their new skills on an actual fire just yet, thanks to this season's extra moisture and the cooler spring. Back at the helicopter training, team manager Whitney Murphy says it's a relief from an often grueling summer. A lot of people don't know lives of wildland firefighters. You go out for 14 days in a row. Uh, you can spend a lot of time away from home in the summertime, and that's hard on people. And he's glad to have the time to learn how to use this nighttime tool. It's allowed us to train and hone these skills and go home at night after doing it. Murphy adds that he does this job because he loves Colorado and he never likes to see it burn. He's hopeful this new program will help keep that from happening. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Your feedback now in loud and clear. We reported last week that the Denver Police Department has encrypted its scanner traffic. No one else can listen in, not you, not the news media. Listener Shelley Fitch of Denver called in after our story to underscore that some citizens rely on scanner activity. There is an organization called Cop Watch that trains people to go to things that they hear about on the radio waves and record the incidents. Now that these communications are encrypted in Denver, the police are protected from people who video what goes on at their interactions with citizens. Fitch believes this could be the reason DPD encrypted its traffic. The department, though, says it's about people's privacy and about officer safety. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Something creepy and crawly takes place in southern Colorado this time of year. Tarantulas appear en masse, scurrying across highways, up walls. 
arachnologists Paula Cushing of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and Brent Hendrickson of Millsaps College in Mississippi know a lot about what these big hairy spiders are up to. We spoke during last year's migration. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. I also see you've brought some friends with you. Do you want to just quickly introduce the other guests in our studio? Sure. I'll let Brent introduce the little boy he brought. Yeah. So I was driving up uh, from Mississippi and just north of Lamar, found this little fella. North uh, of Lamar, Colorado. North of Lamar, Colorado. The southeastern place. Um, and uh, this is a male, like, typical sort of big brown tarantula. Okay. Sometimes called uh, Oklahoma or Texas brown tarantula. One of the most common species in the United States. And and, uh, and he is he, you said? Yes, it's is a he. walking uh, from hand to hand as you manipulate your hand one in front of the other. That's right. And did, did you have a guest? I did have a guest, but I almost got into a traffic accident and she was in the car and she got, she rolled. And so she got a little traumatized and she okay. doesn't want to come out of her little <laughs> But who <laughs> is she? Who is she? She's the female of the same species. Okay. So, and I've had her for about 10 years. So they are very long lived. Oh my mm-hmm. goodness. The longevity. Okay. We have to answer the question, what these tarantulas in the wild are doing in southern Colorado, why they are moving about. How do you answer that question, Paula? So what they're doing is the males are maturing, and they're leaving their burrows, their natal natal burrows, and they're wandering around looking for love. So, so the males off, are looking tar- tar- for the females. Tarantulas burrow in the ground. Right. That's the first thing to understand. Right. They're not web weavers? They're not web weavers. Okay. They do make silk, but they're not using the silk for prey capture. Well, forgive me for interrupting. I just wanted to clarify Absolutely. that. And why are they leaving their burrows? What What is their aim? Right. So their aim is love. They so love. the males are looking for females. And we don't really know how they're locating the females. The females stay close to their own burrows. They don't leave. And the males are wandering around looking for the females. And they're probably following sex pheromones, wouldn't you say, Brent? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, they're, 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 they're sort of in mass, walking around these highways, finding fields, f- coming across silk that might be on the ground near burrows. And they'll stop and they start strutting. They start bouncing around, slapping their legs, uh, trying to get the females' attention. But we don't know how they're finding them initially. So the, the females weave silk? Yes. Okay. The males do not. They all do. They, they all, all use. Do. They all use silk. So the males. But they're not they're webby. Wandering. They're right. they're webbing around their burrows. So ah. they're 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 covering the walls of their burrows with silk, and there's silk extending out of the entryway of the burrow, and that silk that extends out of the entryway probably acts like trip lines. They they don't have very good eyesight, so the spiders are using those silk lines that extend out of the burrow to feel prey insects that are walking past. Is it possible the female mistakes the male for? prey then? Yeah, that can certainly happen. Okay. Uh, especially at night that they're usually, the males are usually out wandering around um, at night, at least for this particular type. And they are sensitive to any vibrations that are near the burrow entrance. And if the male doesn't give the female the right signals, she can easily you know, interpret him as being a prey item and, and we'll, we'll, we'll eat him. So he's, he's basically singing a silk song to her that is very different vibrationally than the vibrations an insect would produce. Mm -hmm. So she can tell that it's a male and not food. But this is a perilous journey for the males because as you say, they might be crossing roads, Brent. That's right. And I imagine that there's a, a 
fair amount of roadkill, is there? And, the, and there's and there's there's danger to arachnologists. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> who are in collecting fact, the trenches, fact, crossing when, when, the road. Yeah, when, when I picked this little guy up, or well, I guess he's not so little. Um, Thirty mile an hour winds coming out of Lamar, north north winds, and I ran out there to pick him up on my hand, and the wind blew him off my hand, and. Probably a quarter mile off in the distance, there's a big semi-truck coming down the other way. Uh, So I'm in the middle of the road, and I finally had to take my hat off and scoop him up and run into my car, not really aware of any traffic that might have been behind me as well. (laughs) How far north in Colorado do tarantulas come? In other words, we've been talking about predominantly southern Colorado. Yeah, it's at least as far north as Pueblo, but I think with with climate change, they're moving a little bit more north. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah, we we have some records of them from, you know, southern El Paso County, uh, so south of just south of Colorado Springs, and they're making their way up slowly. You know, I think if the winters start becoming a little bit warmer, they'll be able to survive those higher elevations during the winter. Um but they're probably not going to be in the, you know, the front range, like the Denver area for a good bit of time. Because, I mean, they're, they're big spiders, but they still don't move very far. But they probably will be slowly making their way up here. There are different types of tarantulas, we should say. Tarantula is not one thing. Correct. Are tarantulas dangerous? Are they a threat in any way to people? In the world, there are, there's at least one species, a, a few species that live in Australia that have uh, venom that's of medical importance to humans. But here in the United States, I don't think there are any species that have been documented documented to have medically important venom. Venom. So they would, they're big enough that if they bit you, you'd feel it. Okay. The fangs are large. It's hard to get them to bite you. As you saw when Brent was holding this male, he, he just sees Brent as kind of a warm, sweaty surface to walk on. So he's not perceiving him as any kind of threat. Um, and even if they did bite, which again would be hard to get them to bite you, uh, the it would feel like a bee sting, but it would go away. It would dissipate after a few minutes, after a half hour. I think maybe people's perceptions and fears of tarantulas are a, a bit outsized. Do you think? Yes. Okay. Yes. It's I also think true that tarant- yes. tarantulas are outsized, too, I <laughs> yes. suppose, for, for I spiders. I think people's fears of spiders in general are, are totally outsized. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan. And we're not calling you wrong for being afraid of spiders, but I- I'm, I'm sitting across from one, and he's perfectly pleasant. Uh, okay, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking about uh, the tarantula migration movement in southern Colorado, which I have to say until this conversation was not a thing I was aware of. They're on the look, uh, f- look out for love. And uh, th- this is a situation where the, the females are like, you come to me, dude. What happens when they pair up? Tell us about the, the sort of life from there. Yeah, so once they do pair up, the it might be a little hard to see, but on the front pair of legs of this male right here, he has these hooks. And with these hooks, he'll he'll secure the female's fangs um, so that she won't bite them. Um, but also it stabilizes her. And then he uses these little club-like leg-like appendages up front called pedipalps, where he's got a little reproductive organ that's been saturated with sperm um, that he'll use. And he'll uh, fertilize the female, deposit sperm with the female, and make a hasty retreat 
runs away as quickly as he can in hope of finding other females. Sometimes the female will end up eating him, which isn't such a bad thing for him, contributing to to, to the female. Um, But he'll continue to to wander around until he literally wears himself, you know, to pieces. Uh, I see. So one male may impregnate many females. Sure. And they they don't hook up and sort of raise the family leave it to beaver style that's no, not that's not the tarantula not. way and the, and in the world of spiders females tend to have the advantage size-wise so mm-hmm. amongst spider species the females are oftentimes slightly larger to dramatically larger than the oh. males so when the males approach a female he's approaching a much larger potential predator what do tarantulas eat when they're not eating each other well, they'll feed on any sort of insects. You know, the females hunker down their burrows at night. They'll come out with their little feet sticking out the burrow entrance, and they're waiting for anything. So crickets, grasshoppers, um, you know, small centipedes. Um, it's even been documented that they, they can take small vertebrates, small, you know, frogs and other really? types of things as well. Absolutely. My goodness. Okay. Paula, you've led something called the Colorado Spider Survey That's since right. 1998. And you've worked with volunteers and other scientists to collect tens of thousands of specimens. Yep creating a huge online database. How are tarantula populations in Colorado in general? I know you made reference to climate change as changing maybe their range. That's a great question, and we don't really know the answer to that. So even though spiders, tarantulas, those arachnids are incredibly species-diverse group. There's over 47,000 described species of spiders on Earth. There's only about 600 professional arachnologists in the world to study these animals. So we're still kind of behind the times in figuring out how healthy the populations are, even what species exist in different areas. So we're still at that level of documenting species diversity, figuring out what species live here in Colorado. So we don't really know how habitat uh, degradation, how climate change is really affecting these populations. That is to say there there may still be spiders to discover in Colorado. Oh, absolutely. Docu- oh, absolutely. In fact, one of my volunteers just yesterday was trying to identify a, a spider and neither one of us could identify it to one. We know what genus it was, but we couldn't identify it to a species. And it's very likely to be a species new to science. And it was collected in Montana. Huh. Are tarantulas good pets? Oh, yeah. They make fantastic pets. Um, in fact, that was my first pet that I had as probably a four, three, four-year-old little boy. Um, they're, you know, the, the North American species are fairly docile. Huh. They're long-lived. Um, they're easy to care for. So you can feed them a few crickets, you know, a couple times a month. You can go on a two-month collecting trip like I'm on right now and leave them at home and they're going to be fine until I get back. Um, I'll say you actually grew up in Colorado. Oh, yeah. Born and raised. How did your family feel about you wanting a tarantula at four? (laughs) I had very supportive parents. Very supportive parents. (laughs) Maybe that's what helps get you into the profession of arachnology. I would add, though, you need to be aware of where the tarantula, uh, how it was acquired. So there are tarantulas that are listed as threatened or endangered Mm -hmm. because they've been overcollected for hobbyists, for people who want to rear them. So you want to know um, how, how this, that it was not a wild-caught tarantula that you've got, um, that you're buying from the pet store or from a hobbyist. Wild-caught. Oh, that is to say that there are tarantula farms? Is that There are people who are rearing raising. tarantulas huh. and selling them for right. pets. Yep. Well, I, well, this could go on uh, for as long as tarantulas have legs. But uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us. We have to wrap up. Thanks so Thank much, Ryan. So much. This was Thank fun. You. 
Paula Cushing studies spiders at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Brent Hendrickson specializes in tarantulas at Millsaps College. We spoke last September. The annual spider migration in southern Colorado gets underway soon and lasts through early October. Okay, up next, if country singer Claire Dunn's head gets too big, she says there's plenty of work around the family farm in Colorado to bring her back down to earth. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Legal marijuana is green. Factually, it just is green. Well, as an industry, it's actually not very green at all. On the latest episode of the new podcast from CPR called On Something, we take a look at one guy in Gypsum, Colorado, who is trying his darndest to grow weed with the smallest carbon footprint possible. Zero carbon footprint, in fact. Listen to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, we're going to reconnect with a country musician who blew us away back in 2016 when she performed at our first ever holiday extravaganza. This is Claire Dunn, who grew up in Two Buttes, Colorado, in the southeast corner of the state, population 43, maybe 42 now since she moved to Nashville. When we first met, she just won Best Female Vocalist at the Rocky Mountain Country Music Awards. And when she finished singing Oh Holy Night for us, I'll admit I was dazzled. Claire Dunn, if you don't become a huge star, something is wrong with the universe. (laughs) Thank you very much. Well, fast forward, and Claire Dunn's been recording new music in a home studio she built. She's been touring a ton and squeezing in time with family in two buttes when she can. She and I met up on a recent Saturday in Fort Collins, aboard her tour bus, parked behind the Sundance Steakhouse and Saloon, where she was performing. Claire, we're here before the show. I understand that actually after the show, you will be on this bus driving right back to Nashville. Yes. I don't even know how many hours it is from... Fort Collins. It's 18 hours from where I'm from in southeast Colorado to Nashville. We're not going to be getting home till tomorrow night. We'll put it that way. <laughs> what is this life like? Do you like it? I love it. The worst day doing this is better than the best day, you know, farming and ranching where I'm from, you know, so that's a tough life. This is not a tough life at all. And you know that ranching life. You did a lot of that work yourself on the farm in Two Buttes. Yes, I grew up on a little teeny tiny farm and ranch, and it was just all hands on deck. Growing up, it was one for all, all for one kind of thing. It's a way of life that I know very well and I miss. You have a joke about the population of two buttes. <laughs> well, okay, so Google, I think, officially says, or at least last time I checked, that it was 43. 
population. And I was like, there is no way. And so my joke is like, I think they took the census at Christmas time when like relatives were home visiting families because I don't believe that there's actually 43. <laughs> Let's talk about your music. So the track My Love, it just has a huge sound. It's catchy. I realize I have been singing it to myself at the office, and that has to be really annoying for my colleagues. My heart is wide open, I'm pouring it out. A final road, no turning back now. My love, yeah, my love, oh, my love, yeah. In my L-O-V-E, baby, yeah, you got it under me, my love, yeah, my love, oh. For me, this song is really at its core about passion, you know, loving whoever you love with passion and not being afraid to. We all have past experiences. Not everything goes right. We might get hurt. You know, we kind of get a little bit guarded sometimes. And this song is really just a message of not letting that past experience hold you back. Give me an example when you've been burned and afraid to get yeah. back on the horse. Yeah. Well, sometimes, especially with this lifestyle, with being a musician, you're a little bit of a gypsy. <laughs> you're, you know, you are everywhere, all over the place. Not everyone understands that. And that is very personal because it's like, man, why wasn't I enough to overcome that? Or, you know, why wasn't I enough that this lifestyle didn't matter? My love is a fire. You can't want it down. It burns like a bourbon when you come around. Are you saying about your love that it burns like a burn pit? Oh, bourbon. <laughs> burns like a bourbon. Yeah, you know the way a bourbon kind of burns going down, but it's a good kind of burn, you know? And then you feel really good. <laughs> I have been singing, it burns like a burn pit. <laughs> hey, I love me burn pits, okay? Maybe I should change the lyric and maybe like, you know, I could get a few free burn pits because I love them so much. So thank you. You just gave me an idea. <laughs> Growing up in Two Buttes, I understand that you loved to dance, mm -hmm. but it was not easy to get to dance class from Two Buttes, Colorado. Oh, no, not at all. I was very lucky, though. We had a little dance studio about an hour north of the farm. What town was that? Oh, the town where the dance studio was was Lamar, Colorado you know, right along 287, on the way to take you from Denver to Dallas. You know, so that studio became a, a haven for me growing up. It was a form of expression. I learned how to express myself. And so much of how I think to this day has to do with motion of dance. How does the song move? How does it make you feel? How are you going to be able to move to this? So I'm picturing your, what, your mom, your dad driving you an hour each way to Lamar to dance class after school? Yes, they drove, my mom drove me and um, she, I think, literally wore out an old suburban engine taking me up there. My parents, they each came from farming families and, and ranching backgrounds, but they weren't encouraged like they encouraged my sister and I to follow whatever their dream is. Like... It was kind of like this old school sort of like, well, if you're not a farmer, you're, you know, you're nothing kind of thing. And so when they had my sister and I, you know, they've been very open with us about it. They And they love ag and they love what they do. 
but they wanted us to have the freedom to choose or not. The farm, the ranch will always be there to come home to if we want to, but they wanted to help us find what our dreams and passions were. So that's how dance came into my life because I was just this little crazy kid running around the house singing and dancing around and just jigging. And my mom was like, what do I do with this child? And when I was in kindergarten, she asked me, it's like, there's a dance studio. Do you think you'd want to go? And I remember it. I remember having this feeling of like looking around this room and I was like, I am dancing. And I was a kindergartner and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing. And I told my mom after, I was like, can we do that again? So did you discover your ability to move before you discovered your ability to sing? Oh, that's a good question. I never thought about that. Um, I don't know that I was thinking about whether or not I could sing when I was little. I was just thinking about, I love this. And I didn't care if I was good or not, you know. And I was probably not. I was awful, I'm sure. But um, I feel like I was doing them both kind of around the same time. Like the first time I sang a song in public, I was about seven. So your song, Tuxedo, is about loving a good man, Mm -hmm. a rancher, a guy who has rough hands, a dirty t-shirt at the end of the day, and you say, my baby don't need no tux, tux, tuxedo. This song got me thinking about what must be a tension in country music. So country's so often about humility, the workaday world. I think it's often about simplicity. And yet, country music is also showbiz, the glitz and the glamour. Is it hard to stay grounded in show business, even though you're in a genre that celebrates the everyday, that celebrates the rancher, that celebrates the farmer? Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like for me, I'm very lucky. <laughs> If there was ever a moment or any time there is potentially a moment where it becomes more about the glitz and the glamour than it does the realness of it, I'm surrounded by people who are like, okay, Claire, back down to earth, you know, like, <laughs> like my parents would be like, oh yeah, okay, well, there's chores outside, there's a horse stall that needs to be cleaned, yeah, if you could just, when you're done writing that song, get out there and do it, or no, it's actually, get out there and, you know, go help out and then finish your song, you know, so I think I'm very lucky that the roots that I come from are very deep, and not to say that they haven't given me wings, they have, but they're always there thankfully, to remind me what's important. Why don't we wrap up with Cowboy Side of You. Set it up for us, will you? Cowboy Side of You is one of my favorite songs that I've put out so far that I've released. I released it as an independent artist prior to having a record deal. You know, a lot of my start came from touring the country, playing every dive, honky-tonk. Any place that would let me come play, I was touring there in an F-150 pickup in a trailer. Me and three guys. And so that song was very impactful, not only because, you know, the message of it and 
the song is saying basically you can have a cowboy attitude and be a city slicker. You know, the cowboy attitude for me is all about marching to the beat of your own drum, not being afraid to blaze your own trail in whatever it is you want to do, whether you work at Walmart or you're CEO of a, you know, Fortune 500. So that is number one why that song was so special. But also, I was, it was at a time in my life when I, was, I didn't have a record deal and it helped get me one. And people, you know, sing that song everywhere I play now. So it was very special for me. You rode in, in the dark, like a Sunday's people, you stole my heart. Said a love that you feel, and we kicked it into gear, and we drove it like hell. Just rolling to the trellis, just like John Wayne would do. I love that cowboy side of you. Love that Clarence, thanks for having us on your tour bus. Have a great show and a safe drive back to Nashville. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Love y'all. Country musician Claire Dunn was born and raised in two buttes in southeast Colorado. We caught up aboard her tour bus before a show at the Sundance Steakhouse and Saloon in Fort Collins. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.